Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, can a Republican win in the deep blue state of Oregon? A conservative candidate is getting a significant boost from someone who could turn out to be both a political ally and an enemy. She left the Democrat Party to run right up the middle, and I think she too has a very good shot at winning this race. Here in Washington, the GOP seems to be gaining some ground. We'll take a look at the latest polls. Republicans have made up uh, seven points of that gap since July. Plus, the threat of nuclear war has suddenly increased. Russia's threatened to use nuclear weapons to defend any land it takes from Ukraine. The U.S. is warning its leaders there will be grave consequences if it does. And Alex Jones continues to be Alex Jones. I've already said I'm sorry hundreds of times, and, I, and I've done saying I'm sorry. All of that coming up this hour, but we begin with a fight in the Chinatown International District of Seattle has really come to a head. If you've been on social media at all, you've seen a lot of the ad saying, save the CID, save Chinatown, save the International District. What are they trying to save it from? Well, a homeless shelter. More specifically, what a lot of people call a homeless megaplex. Joining me now is John Lobertini. He is a reporter for Northwest News Radio who has been covering this story. And let's start right there. What exactly is the plan for the Chinatown International District that the city is trying to put through? Well, the city, and this is the newly created King County Homelessness Authority. So everything that Seattle was doing with homelessness has gone to the authority. They've contributed, I think, over $100 million to this. And what they're doing is they want to expand a shelter in Hinghe Park that would house close to 500 homeless people, provide RV parking, and a sobering center. The folks in that area are upset because there are already five locations that are serving the homeless and providing housing. And, you know, it's not just homelessness. It's crime and violence, and, you know, they they want a break. So when did this plan really come out? Because it's the first that a lot of people, I think, are hearing of it. Well, you know, it depends on who you talk to. Uh, a lot of the folks in uh, the Chinatown International District say they weren't aware of this. And then all of a sudden in May, it was passed. They had options on properties, and it was full steam ahead. The county says they met with over a dozen community groups. They had two community meetings, one in the Chinatown International District. Uh, But again, the folks there say they didn't know. Uh, They're pointing the finger at uh, King County Executive Dow Constantine, saying you weren't forthcoming uh, and we didn't know about this. Uh, Tanya Wu, who is a local business owner and uh, part of the uh, Friends of the Chinatown International District, you know, just want, she said, we just want to be heard. She says, this is the same systemic ra- racism, the, them making decisions about our community without our input. Uh, and they're, they're standing by that. So what's been the response from King County? The, the protest took place on Tuesday. And uh, the day before on Monday, Dow Constantine was holding a news conference on something else. And he was asked about this whole situation. We began the public outreach on this in March. And uh, it's clear that although uh, we did outreach in that Soto neighborhood as well as the adjacent neighborhoods of Pioneer Square and the Chinatown International District, that was not enough. That was the response from Dow Constantine. So how much of this is King County Executive Dow Constantine versus Seattle Mayor Bruce Harrell versus the King County Regional Homeless Authority, which we've talked about in the past, is sort of its own independent government agency? Well, I don't think we really know. But what I do know is that this is not the first time King County has been accused of of dropping something on the community. You know, there's been a lot of discussion 
about juvenile diversion programs. And, you know, I had mayors in, in several South County cities say, you know, they, they dropped this on us. You know, these are, these are programs where you've got criminal offenders. They're not serving time. They're, the idea is to counsel them and not put them in the prison system. They said, they just dropped this on us. And we went to them and said, you've got to give us some notice. They said, don't we have a say here? And the response I got from them was that, you know, they, King County, told these mayors that, you know, this is part of the plan and we're doing it. So this is not the first group that has pointed the finger at King County for not being forthcoming about what their plans are. So, you know, you, you kind of have to read between the lines there, but the players involved are Dow Constantine, Mark Dones, who runs the King County Homelessness Authority, and to a lesser extent, I think, Mayor Bruce Harrell. Let's talk more about this proposal. You, you mentioned it's going to be several hundred beds, you know, some supportive shelter, a sobering center, and all of the things that come along with it. Where exactly would it go? And is this something that is going to be converted from an existing building? Is it going to be new construction? I mean, what exactly are we seeing here as far as the plans for this facility? Well, it's a $66 million project, and they're calling it the Soto Services Hub. Uh, My understanding is that they are going to, uh, and they may already be, rehabbing a building in uh, Hinghe Park. The Salvation Army was uh, running an outfit there, and they are going to take care of this much larger larger, uh, Soto Services Hub. But it's something they're investing a lot of money in. A lot of that money, of course, will go to manpower. They are committed to doing treatment the right way. Uh, They have some good ideas, certainly ideas that differ from what other major cities are doing. Uh, But this is a big project. This is why they created the King County Homelessness Authority, to have some place, someone focused on the problem of homelessness, mental health, addiction, and so on. But again, as we've reported on in the past, that regional homelessness authority isn't directly reporting to the voters or directly responsible to the voters because none of those officials are elected. They are officials from other agencies, such as the city of Seattle or other jurisdictions, such as King County. So the people don't have a direct voice in the regional homelessness authority. But without getting into the politics of that, uh, how much of this is just the the NIMBY factor? Because regardless of where you put a homelessness hub or, or however you want to describe it, you know, supportive housing or a sobering center or any of these things, the people in that neighborhood are going to say, not in my backyard. Well, you know, and I think you're going to get that just about everywhere. I think the people in the international district, though, have a real argument. I mean, let's face it. Uh, homelessness has been chronic in that area for years. And there's a woman named Kim Ng. She runs a beauty salon in that area. And she's quite the character. And and she says, you know, there's a difference between homelessness and crime. And there, I think, is is your line in the sand. You can't you can't have homelessness without crime. And that is the point that people like Kim Ng are making. She's got a business down there and they're, you know, she's, she's trying to get attention. This is their opportunity to be heard. It's a little of both, but when you're looking at the folks in the Chinatown International District, I, I think there's a real argument for some kind of relief. But, you know, I've had people ask me over the years, you know, why are there so many people in this city or that city? Well, you know, when you're the county seat, you know, that's where the services are. And unfortunately, at some point in time over the years, the services matriculated over to uh, that area around Pioneer Square and uh, the Chinese International District, Hinghe Park. 
uh, and that you know is generally where they stay. So what is the county going to do next? You, you say that King County Executive Dale Constantine says their outreach wasn't enough. Uh, obviously, the King County Regional Homelessness Authority wants to move forward on this project, but uh, how are they mitigating these complaints from the neighbors? Well, I don't know that they've gone so far as to do that yet. I mean, it's one thing to make a public mea culpa that we didn't do enough, but is that enough to stop the project. And I asked Tanya Wu that very question over and over again. Well, what do you want them to do? Do you want them to do away with the project? And, you know, she didn't really say no. And she didn't really say yes. You know, her point and the point of a lot of those people there was that we want to be heard. They must consult the community if they're going to force policies on us like this. I mean, this is a long history placing high impact projects near us. That really doesn't answer your question. but I think that's you know, really a work in progress, you know, that I don't think we've reached a tipping point yet, but they are moving full steam ahead with this. I mean, they, they optioned the property in May. And so they've had, you know, what, two, three months going on four months now to set up the project and get the work going. Um, I think it's going to be a hard, you know, it's going to be difficult to push that rock back up the hill. Uh, but I think, you know, this is a wait and see. All right, John Lobertini, reporter for Northwest News Radio. Thank you so much for your time and insight. You bet. We have to take a quick break. But when we come back, a trip across the southern border, not to Mexico, but rather to the deep blue state of Oregon, where a Republican has a real shot at becoming governor. When the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Well, there are not many states that are as left-leaning as Washington State, but one of them is Oregon. However, the Beaver State might soon elect a Republican governor. How exactly is this happening? Joining me now is Randall Edwards. He is the former state treasurer down in Oregon. He's now a political analyst and strategist with Strategies 360. And I'll put it right to you. What is going on down there in Salem? Well, Jeff, I think you've uh, framed this nicely. Uh, Oregon is going through, I think, what a lot of the country is trying to feel, and that is, do the two parties represent all the interests in the state? And so not only do we have a viable candidate in our Republican nominee, uh, we have Tina Kotek, who's the Democrat nominee, and the third candidate is Betsy Johnson, who's a non-affiliated candidate. She's not assigned to any party, and she left the Democrat Party to run right up the middle. And I think she, too, has a very good shot at winning this race. So she's kind of playing the role of spoiler, as it were. Yeah, I think some people would describe it as that, or some would say savior. I think that her message has been both parties aren't serving the people, which not only is happening in Oregon, it's happening across the country. And so, therefore, she's taking that message, and people seem to be listening to what she's having to say and attacking both the Democrat and the Republican for not being responsive to the needs of Oregon. So what are some of the big issues down there in Oregon that have come up during this campaign that have really pushed this left-leaning independent, if I were to call her that, uh, to the forefront? Good question. I think, you know, like every state, we went through the pandemic and that had a lot of economic and social implications for Oregon and Portland got a lot of national news for the rioting that was happening in Portland. We have a very large homeless problem in Portland. And so a lot of Portlanders, which is normally the base for Democrats, uh, the tri-county area, there are a lot of upset people. Again, that's something that Betsy Johnson's tapping into is that this 
disgruntlement with the government and the fact that we have a, a very large homeless problem. And, and, and we had a lot of violence that has left scars on the city of Portland that are still there. So let's kind of go through each of these candidates. Uh, we'll start with Tina Kotek. She's the, the Democrat in the race, and she was the former Speaker of the House. Is that right? Yeah, she was the longest serving Speaker in Oregon history, 10 years, effective, and, and both representing what would be the traditional Democrat base, uh, labor, for example, environmental groups, uh, women's issues as well. But she also worked hard with the business community on passing the largest tax increase to fund our schools in Oregon. So she's seen as a very effective legislator who knows the state really well and the budgets really well. So, And she's making a case that Democrats continue to provide good leadership in the state and, and is really move, looking to move forward with her own agenda. And then the Republican, Christine Drazen, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Who's she? Christine Drazen was also a legislator, was in leadership in the state house, seen as a Republican that can work across the aisle. I, I think that's been another challenge for the Republicans in this state. She's trying to drive more of a moderate uh, message as well. And typically in the state of Oregon, we, Democrats usually come out ahead because it's a head-to-head between Democrat and Republican. And there's more Democrats than Republicans, but also the non-affiliated voters tend to break towards uh, the Democrats, particularly on social issues, which, again, tend to drive these elections as much as anything. And Betsy Johnson, the independent the that leans left, who maybe, as you say, taking some of the votes from Tina Kotek. Betsy's a really interesting candidate. She's been in the state legislature for nearly 20 years. Her family have long ties to Oregon. Uh, she was a Republican at one point in her life, switched a number of years ago and has been a state senator as a Democrat representing the northwest part of Oregon along the coast and down along the Columbia River, Scappoose area, and has always been seen as a very tenacious legislator who fought for constituent work. And she's garnered a lot of support from both what would be seen as traditional Republican bases. Uh, the business community has been pouring money into her campaign pain, as have others who see her as one that can drive a message of change in the state because she's said, uh, driving, as I said earlier, a message about the two parties not meeting the needs of this of Oregon and and the, the bitterness between the two parties. So she seems to be getting a lot of traction. In the polls, she's still a little behind. The most recent poll had a toss-up between the Republican, Christine, and the Democrat, Tina. But Betsy's raised the most money. And her challenge, of course, is always the two parties always have a base to work from so they can get people to get out the vote, which typically is why the Democrats have always gotten the lean, because they can use the labor base and their their people to get voters out. But there seems to be a real appall in Oregon, like much of the country, about politics. And so I think they're all very viable candidates raising money with messages that obviously have been poll tested. And they seem to be each having some traction outside of their normal base, which I think is really an interesting experiment. We're speaking with Randall Edwards. He is a political analyst and strategist with Strategies 360 about the governor's race down in Oregon. And I understand abortion has also become a big issue in this three-way race. Yes, it has. Christine is pro-life. She's stated it. She's not deviating from that, but she is saying she's not going to change anything. It's an interesting challenge for any Republican. Usually in a primary, you have to go to the right so far and the right to life groups really make that a litmus test. But the interesting part is both Betsy and Tina are pro-choice. And so that kind of nullifies the issue between those two. So it, it because again, three-way race, 
that issue is a big issue, and it, it is being driven by both candidates, Betsy and Tina, against Christine. And I think, again, I think that that does handicap Christine because, again, Oregon is a pro-choice state. What are some of the ads we're seeing and hearing down there in this race? Christine is painting Tina as uh, Kate Brown light because Kate Brown, our current governor, doesn't poll very well. That's trying to wrap her up around being Kate's successor as, as the same thing as Kate. Betsy's running against Portland, the, the, the problems in Portland, blaming Tina for that, also attacking Christine on uh, being, you know, the Republican Party's too, too extreme. So, and, and she, again, is driving that message straight up the middle. Tina's saying, I have a plan for the state, Abortion is clearly one of the things I want to protect. That's a huge issue. And that the Republicans are too extreme. I know that Tina's campaign, I'm sure, is very concerned about Betsy pulling numbers from the Democrats. And I think that's happening. So if an independent or a Republican is elected to the governor's office in Oregon, how does that change state politics? I think it will change it dramatically. The Democrats will hold the legislature. That seems to be not a change happening. There'll be some new leadership, but that that isn't going to change. But I think Betsy would really shake up the state you know, fiscally, but also provide more of a business approach to the state, which would be something that hasn't happened given her sort of background and, and, and experience both as a legislator and as a business person. Christine, I would also be a change in the fact that she's a Republican, and I think she would help elevate that party in its role in the state and veto what she would want to veto. So it would it would upset the, the balance that has been dominated by Democrats, and she'll have a different agenda. So what are you expecting to see for the next uh, couple of weeks and months as we head towards Election Day? A lot of ads, a lot of uh, hit ads, a lot of fundraising going on. You know, the, I, I think the national poll that just came out that showed that it was a toss-up between Christine and Tina really opened up a lot of people's eyes like, wow, this race is really becoming heated much closer. People are starting to pay attention to it, which is typical after Labor Day. And now we've got a very tight race. It's an interesting experiment. I, I keep calling it an experiment because Betsy is really that voice for a lot of people in this state who are frustrated with the party and the and the partisanship. All right, Randall Edwards, political analyst and strategist with Strategies 360. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Jeff, thank you very much. We have to take another quick break, but coming up, a look at the polls here in Washington State as Republicans seem to be taking back some of the ground they lost when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela, and for this segment, we figured we'd Take a look at some of the races here in Washington State as we are inching ever closer to the 2022 midterm elections. Joining me now is Stuart Elway. He is the founder of Elway Research and the director of the Crosscut Elway Poll. And this past week, you released the results of your latest poll and some interesting changes. Some other things have remained the same. But uh, let's start with the biggest race that uh, a lot of people are looking at, and that's for the Senate. And it looks like Patty Murray's at one point, 20 point lead over Tiffany Smiley seems to have evaporated a bit. Yeah, the uh, the gap is closed across the board on the other races we'll talk about, but the, uh, it did in this race. She had a 53 to 33 lead in our July poll, which was up from only three points in January, and now it's shrunk back down to seven. Um, so the, the Republicans have uh, made up ground over the course of the summer. The January poll showed you know, possibility of a red wave that everyone was talking about. July poll said, no, that's not happening. In this state, it's going to be a blue wave. 
And now it's, you know, I don't know, slack tight. <laughs> but Murray's still polling about at, at 50%, which uh, as an incumbent uh, is where you want to be. It means that Smiley would have to not only get all of the undecided votes, but take away votes from Murray in these last six weeks of the campaign, which is a heavy lift. You mentioned that January poll made it look kind of like there was a red wave. Then there was, you know, kind of a reversion to a blue wave. Now we're back towards the middle. What, what does that tell you about the trends over the last year or so? It tells me that there's a lot of both unsettled opinion, but also people now kind of reverting to their default positions. I mean, you know, this is, so right now, for example, in our poll this last week, Republicans had a nine point advantage in uh, party identification. And in July, it was up to 20. Uh, But nine, over the last several election cycles, it's been around 10, 11, 12. So it's, it's really, you know, about where it's typically been. I think what happened between January and July, the big trigger was the Dobbs decision by the Supreme Court to uh, uh, reverse Roe v. Wade, which just triggered a lot of action and enthusiasm, particularly on the Democratic side. And I think now we get to September, that is... It's still there, but it's kind of baked in now. And traditionally, we think of about Labor Day when people really start to focus on the elections. The ads are running fast and furious now. So we expect things to shift around somewhat around this time of year. But right now, they are about where we typically see them in uh, late September, early October. And then taking a look at the the races for Congress here in Washington state, obviously all 10 of the districts are up for re-election this year. Uh, you, you have not, it's not really a, a specific poll to one district and it's not really the generic ballot question. Are you going to vote for the Republican or the Democrat? The way you, you did this was uh, depending on whom you were calling in this statewide poll, you put the name in of the Democrat and the name in of the Republican. And, and it seems like like the Democrats still have a significant advantage over Republicans in Washington state. Well, they do. And it's sort of a modified generic question because we do roll it up to statewide. And of course, there are 10 separate elections and the statewide number really is sort of an indication of the overall climate, not the particular weather in any particular um, district. Um, and and our, our numbers in each district are too small to make any uh, inferences for, from that, but when you roll it up, you get you have the same sense of overall forty nine percent of the folks in the state are planning to vote for a Democrat for Congress, and of course that's reflected in the distribution of the delegation as well. You know, we have three Republicans again. That is down from a nineteen point gap in July to a twelve point gap now. So the Republicans have made up uh, seven points of that gap uh, since July. It's consistent with the numbers we were just talking about with Murray about the gaps is sort of closing. Republicans are sort of coming back. But 
still have a long way to go. And and we see that in, in pretty much every election that early on in the election year, you have a bigger gap and then things close as you get closer to voting and people getting their ballots and, right. and sending them off. But in, in this particular case, we had so much happen. As you mentioned, the Dobbs decision over the summer, the, the shifting back and forth. Is this year any different because of that? Or are we seeing just pretty much the general trends we see in every midterm? Well, you know, it, it just does seem like the news background. I mean, with the Dobbs decision is the one that's got all the, all the attention. And I think that certainly was a trigger. But I think what it triggered was a realization among a lot of people who weren't paying too much attention to the election, maybe, or, or less so. And the idea that elections have consequences, these things matter. And again, it was not only the Dobbs, we've got the January 6th hearings that went on between that January and July period. Biden actually passed several pieces of major legislation, which has sort of gotten lost in the hubbub, but it still happened and and people are aware of that. And, and then the Ukraine war and inflation. So, I mean, there's just, there's just, a, it seems like there's just a lot of context in which this election is being contested. And I, I think that's having uh, an effect as people decide how they're going to vote. You know, we, we asked the question for the legislature, but we asked the question about what are the factors that are most important to help you decide how to vote? And typically that question would be something like, what what issue is most important to you? But we widen the lens to say factors that will help you decide. And we got things that weren't issues. The number one thing was the economy, no surprise. Uh, but the number two was party, party identification. And one out of five people said that party identification was going to uh, be largely determinative of how they vote. And then at, right, right behind that was the candidates' qualities, you know, uh, their values, their honesty, that sort of thing. And then came abortion and then crime and drugs. So when you ask people how they are looking at this, you get more than just issues. Abortion is the number one single issue, well, number two after economy. But people are weighing a lot of different factors as they decide what to do with their ballot this November. So looking at, at the results of this poll that uh, you just released, what can you infer? What are some of the broad implications or broad conclusions that you can draw from the results? Well, I think, you know, Washington's still a blue state, probably not as blue as it might seem uh, as the election results show, but... One broad inference is that it's still um, an uphill battle. Republicans are swimming against the tide, whatever metaphor you want to use, in Washington state. Second, I think, as we have talked about the Supreme Court decisions, the uh, January 6th hearings, uh, inflation, uh, all that stuff has played a, a large role, I think, in how people are, are looking at this uh, election. And partisanship is a, just pure partisanship is stronger than it once was. All right, Stuart Elway, founder of Elway Research and director of the Crosscut Elway Poll. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Anytime. Thanks. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, Russia threatens a nuclear strike over Ukraine when the Northwest Politicast continues after this.
Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Well, it's not something that we've experienced since the 80s, the threat of nuclear war. Apparently, that threat has become all that more pronounced in the last couple of days after Vladimir Putin threatened he might use nuclear weapons to hang on to the territory he gained when his country invaded Ukraine. Joining me now is ABC's Andy Field from Washington, D.C. And anytime you hear nuclear weapons... That causes a lot of world leaders around the globe to perk up. Yeah, well, here's the problem with nuclear weapons. You use it, and whatever you hit is uninhabitable for quite a long time. We saw it when the United States bombed Japan during World War II, that there were great swaths of areas where uh, nothing lived anymore, and the people who did survive didn't survive very long. They ended up with terrible cancers and other horrific diseases. Uh, so it just seems at this point unthinkable that Russia would do this because some of that radiation would come right back on its own citizens. If it was uh, using nuclear weapons, however strategic they are, anywhere within Ukraine. But that is what the threat has been from their foreign ministers uh, this week saying that if this so-called sham election that's happening right now in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region where Russia insists that the people there want to be part of Russia and if anyone stops them from trying to annex that area that uh, they could use anything up up to and including nuclear weapons. From the United States point of view this is significantly chilling and certainly for folks in Europe because they'd be closer to the blast zone if that happened. But we're told uh, from fairly reliable sources that the U.S. has had this quiet diplomacy with Russia going, guys, if you do this, uh, you're, this is basically game over. That, um, But we don't know exactly what the threats have been, but they said the consequences will be dire. Now, we've talked to some military folks and experts who say, well, what would those dire consequences be? And it would probably include having NATO and U.S. air forces strike every position that Russia has within Ukraine right now and wipe out those forces. That would be enough to uh, at least deter Russia. But then, of course, does Vladimir Putin at this point, because he has lost pretty much everything and has been humiliated, decide to start pushing those buttons and launching more nuclear weapons? And now we have World War III and truly, it is game over. Well, and certainly it's easy to see how this spirals out of control. But let's start with that idea of the territory that Russia gained when they invaded Ukraine. There's talk of, of using tactical nuclear weapons. Now, these aren't the, the big thermonuclear bombs that can take out a city, right? These are the smaller ones that may be used in an artillery-like fashion to take out a regiment of troops, correct? Uh, that's true. But when you're talking nuclear weapons, uh, it's very hard to make a small one. Uh, when you when you blow something up with a nuclear weapon, the radiation, the blast, and everything else is so powerful that it extends far beyond the one little area that it might hit. So tactical may be a misnomer because we haven't seen a whole lot of demonstration that indeed this is going to be the case. And if that is the case, what do you need to use a nuclear bomb for with its attached radiation? Why not use standard weapons? There are other weapons. We remember these bunker buster bombs that the United States used in Afghanistan to, to hit deep inside mountains. Those bombs exist and Russia has them. Uh, it would be surprising if they didn't want to use it, but of course they don't need to 
bust any bunkers. They're simply killing human beings, many of them unarmed and simply civilians going about their lives. Well, and certainly from the Cold War, we have learned that no one will win in a nuclear exchange. So how much of this is just saber rattling from the Kremlin? Well, at the at this point, it's all saber rattling. But, um, you know, we saw the saber rattling last winter when a lot of folks, including Ukraine, didn't think that Russia was going to attack. And they did. So a lot of unthinkables have become thinkable. And that's the thing that's so dangerous right now, especially with Vladimir Putin now enlisting upwards of 300,000 uh, folks, mostly reserves that never expected to fight in a war again. And we're seeing this mass exodus and protests all across Russia and all of its many time zones. In fact, most of the new call-ups that they're having have been coming from the far eastern reaches where the media isn't as uh, apparent that there are a lot of folks that don't have uh, access to some of the other things that they do in Moscow and such. So they're trying to get folks who aren't going to make as big a fuss, but there is being a big fuss made right now inside of Russia. So clearly, if Vladimir Putin is making these threats for the use of nuclear weapons, calling up the reservists from areas that may not know entirely what's going on, the war is not going very well for him. Apparently not. I mean, there have been a number of uh, advances that Ukrainian forces have made over the last few weeks, taking back territory that Russia had, uh, which is one of the reasons that he's called up these reserves and also has resumed trying to bomb civilian areas that, that have no strategic interest at all to Russia other than to create a terror and chaos inside Ukraine. Vladimir Putin doesn't fight a clean war. He's been fighting dirty since the very beginning. We've seen mass graves. We've seen uh, war crimes and atrocities that have been documented over and over and over again. Putin is not going to go down well in the history books. Before, he was he was listed as a, basically a big strong man who saw the dissolution of the Soviet Union under his own feet. Now, he may go down in history as a war criminal compared to some of the worst in, in history. So how, and, and, and it's hard to really ask this question because I don't think anyone truly knows the answer, but how much resistance is there to Putin within the Kremlin itself? Because it seems more and more like a desperate madman who can prevent him from launching these weapons? Well, I would imagine it's his own military, his own military advisors, his own top advisors. We've seen these videos and pictures of Putin sitting at the end of a very long table with his advisors, almost in a different zip code at the other end of the uh, end of the table. This is a man who seems to be uh, fearful of his own advisors and keeping an arm's length or table's length distance from them. It's very unusual, but at this point, we don't know if there's going to be a palace coup. Is there going to be some kind of overthrow of Putin where even the, the Russian military realizes this is a fool's errand and, and they have to stop it in order to save their country? All right, ABC's Andy Field. These are scary times, but thank you for the time and insight. Thanks, Jeff. We have to take another quick break, but when we come back, conspiracy theorist and radio host Alex Jones remains defiant in court. I've already said I'm sorry hundreds of times, and, I, and I've done saying I'm sorry. More when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogula. Here's Greg Hersholt in Manda Factor. Alex Jones took the stand in a second defamation trial to determine what he should pay Sandy Hook families. Jones has called the 2012 massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School a hoax. The plaintiff's attorney called on Jones to show some respect in court. You have families in this courtroom here that lost children, sisters, 
wives, moms. This is this a struggle session? Are we in China? I've already said I'm sorry hundreds of times, and, I, and I'm done saying I'm sorry. With us right now is ABC News senior investigative reporter Aaron Katursky. Aaron, it sounds like he caused quite a scene in court. Yeah, and whether that's because uh, he was being performative or whether he was really uh, maybe the plaintiff's attorney got under his skin, you, you just don't know. But Alex Jones became heated. The testimony became argumentative. There, there were strenuous objections uh, repeatedly by the defense, so many that the judge finally said, are you objecting to the line of questioning or are you objecting to the way your client is answering? Because he was going well beyond the scope of the question to just make some inflammatory statements. And at, at one point, uh, the judge said, you know, you're not performing here for your audience. You're testifying in a court of law, so you have to act accordingly. This trial comes just a month after a Texas jury ordered Jones to pay nearly $50 million in damages. Are the stakes here similar? Yeah, they are. There's no, in, in, under Connecticut law, there's no cap on the potential damages that Jones would have to pay for defaming the Sandy Hook families. And they were right there in the, in the courtroom, including Robbie Parker, who lost his six-year-old daughter, Emily. Jones conceded under questioning that he had thought Parker was acting when, when he spoke in 2012 about his daughter and, his, uh, and the loss that, that she caused the family. And at that point, that's when the, the argument began. You know, show a little respect. The families are sitting right here. You put a target on their back. Jones said he didn't. But that's what the families have testified, that he caused them undue trauma on top of the pain they were already enduring because of the loss of their children. Can't imagine that his performance yesterday is going to elicit much sympathy as they decide how much he's going to have to pay. You know, it's hard to imagine that, that, that Alex Jones comes across as a sympathetic figure, but he almost cast himself as a victim of, of a deep state that's out to take away guns, and that's why they stage massacres to engender sympathy for the cause. Uh, but maybe there's somebody on the jury who agrees with him. Who knows? But it is hard to imagine. And that's ABC's Aaron Katursky talking with Greg Herschelt and Manda Factor. And that'll do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week. 